And you are listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on Community Radio 2 X 98.3 FM. And we have a very exciting show lined up for you this morning. In fact, we have a double feature today because this morning we're going to start off by talking astronomy, the big questions about where the universe came from, how we know where it is and what it's doing. And then we have a very special interview with Living Treasure and Australian of the Year 2005, Dr. Fiona Wood, a pioneer of the uh, Burns treatment. Now, on the phone uh, live, David Renicky, science writer and astronomy buff, and with me, David? Yeah, I'm with you there, Ruth. And g'day, and yeah. uh, welcome to Fuzzy Logic. Yeah, good on you. Thank you. Good, good to be with you. Pleasure to be with you, actually, and uh, a good subject you picked today, too. Yes, well, we're going to catch up on all of the uh, science news. And also in the studio with me today is uh, Professor Frank Briggs from the Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics at Mount Stromlo and Siding Springs Observatories. Good morning and welcome to Fuzzy Logic. Oh, good morning, Rod. Good morning, David. Yeah, morning, Frank. Pleasure to be here. Now, we're going to kick off with a few interesting things that are happening this day in science, but also what's happening in science news. Now, David, the Discovery Shuttle has just taken off. Well, it has, Rod. It's, uh, it, it signals the end of a, a brand new, well, it signals the end of an era and starts a, a brand new era, if you could call it that. You know, the, the space station, uh, it needs to be finished, and that's what this is all about. It's taking up a robot called Rover Nord. This is the first robotic uh, figure we've had. This is a completely, you know, uh, uh, well, well, it's just new technology. It's going to be working on the space station, and, and I guess, you know, it doesn't need to be fed, doesn't need a space suit, it can work outside. That's one of the things being taken up there, also taking up supply. Flies. Space stations always manned, people always on there, and uh, it's the it's basically the end of it. This year finishes the construction of the space station. We've been part of that. Uh, look, I, I for one will, will will sort of applaud the last shuttle flight, and that should be towards the end of the year. There are two more to go. We just saw Discovery launch, but certainly an interesting launch. I did notice on um, some of the news channels there there was something coming off. Uh, you know, during launch, like pieces of foam or something like that, I was a bit concerned about that, but NASA have said nothing about it, so it looks like everything's going well. Now, didn't they have a problem with one of the uh, tiles popping off? Yeah, they, they've had so many troubles with these shuttles over the years. I was there in November last year. I went over to, to watch Discovery launch, and uh, you can understand from Australia it's not a very cheap uh, uh, exercise to go and do that. Luckily, I had people stay with. We stayed the entire week, and I thought that would be enough, but it just had continuing problems with switches, and then they found cracks in the uh, the tank itself, and that meant another hole. So for five or six days, we're on tender hooks and finally had to come home, miss the launch, and look how long it's been between then and now until they've got it up and flying. Uh, look, I just think it's, a, it's not a good way to fly. It should never have been built in the first place. I think there were better ideas around. NASA didn't take the advice from those people. They went ahead with this plan. So many NASA administrators over the years have said, you know, if, if I'd have been in charge at the time, uh, Mike Griffin was one of those. He said, if I'd have been in charge of NASA at the time, I wouldn't have initiated this program. Too costly, too dangerous. And I, I applaud that. I agree with that. So we're, we're looking at the end of a, an era and the start of a new one, but NASA don't have 
Well, it's not the same as what it was. The American space program, in part now, and frankly, you'd, you'd know this has been turned over partly to private enterprise. Well, I can see private enterprise coming more and more into, into what NASA are doing. It means that we won't be going back to the moon. Bush's vision won't be realised. The Constellation program basically is dead in the water, and the only part of that that's been salvaged, luckily, is something, is the Orion capsule, which I believe will be used as a, a little shuttlecraft. So... The, you know, the space program that, that you and I grew up with, Frank, probably you too, right? I'm not sure. It doesn't exist in the way we, we knew it. And those days are gone. We need something new. We need a, need a new race. Yeah, the, uh, the vision was for a reusable vehicle, I think, and hoping that the cost would be reduced of space flight. But from what I can tell, it's actually really hasn't achieved that at all. It's actually really expensive to send something up via the space shuttle. Well, it is. It's, uh, it's about $10,000 US dollars per pound just to launch anything anyway. And that was in the pre-shuttle days. Things have certainly gone up. I believe it's about a billion dollars a launch. And a when billion? They have, yeah, best part of it. When they have a scrub, it's, it costs them up to around $300,000 to, uh, to, you know, to drain the tanks to get people out and keep uh, keep everything rolling. It's, a, it's an expensive way to fly and a dangerous way to fly when you think that this thing has got hundreds and hundreds of tiles on it. That uh, although, although they do they do the job of protecting the fuselage and the people inside, they're simply just stuck on. They're tiles that are stuck on. I've always wondered whether is this a safe way to do space flight? When you turn around and look at the vehicle that Richard Branson's got, that does not have any tiles. It comes back through the atmosphere the same way the shuttle does in the same speed the shuttle does, yet they can funnel the back section of the wings, the back part of the wing section can be turned into the shape of a shuttlecock, which slows the vehicle down and it doesn't need, you know, it doesn't need any expensive time, yeah. no, so, no um, heat danger or whatever. Now, with this um, program ending, uh, <clears throat> we need a replacement way of getting up into space and one that's hopefully a bit more economical. Uh, they actually are working on a replacement, but for the moment they're dependent on the Soviets to get stuff up into space. Yeah, that's how it's going to be for the next five years at least. Uh, it's really sad to say that, you know, the American space program no longer has any resemblance to what we knew. But I, I can see NASA taking a third or a fourth step back behind the Chinese, the Russians, the Indians, Japanese as well. You know, and, and, and strangely enough, we're, I think we're the only developed country beside Britain that doesn't have their own space program, and I think that's... That's really sad when we did have a burgeoning industry here at one stage. We all remember Woomera. We were launching the Blue Streak rocket here. We launched Resat from here, our own satellite. And, you know, sadly, Woomera now, if you mention Woomera overseas, it's got an entirely different meaning to folk. Uh, and, and people don't remember when it was a city in its own right. And we had Americans working and living here. And we had, uh, you know, we, we, we were third in the world behind the Britons and uh, behind the Russians and the Americans. And uh, we were third in the world. We just we just lost the plot somewhere along the line. Yeah, it's a bit of a shame. Well, I could add that from a scientist's point of view, from an astronomer's point of view, that, that Europe is also playing a role. I think that the uh, JWST telescope is likely to be launched by a European This is the uh, James vehicle, Webb? James Webb telescope, yes. Yeah. So they, still, they have the kind of capacity that can send astronomical payloads up. Which is what we need. Now, also uh, in the news at the moment, uh, now we tend to think of the sun as being this constantly burning thing up in the sky, 
but actually is, has these grumpy moods from time to time. And a few days ago, it, it did a bit of a spit in our direction, and there was a solar flare. Isn't that right? Yeah, this is the biggest solar flare we've had in four years. These are dangerous. We're entering a new cycle now. We're entering the solar maximum, and a lot of people have been saying, a lot of astronomers and a lot of NASA astronomers too have been saying that this solar maximum starting in the year 2013 may be, and I must underline may be, the biggest solar storm we've had or the period of solar activity we've had in probably 100 years. This solar flare was a beauty, but it wasn't anything like we had in 2006. On December 5, we had a, a solar flare which produced an X9 explosion. This is, a, this is about as, as good as it gets. It's more powerful, eight times more powerful than the one we've just gone through. So they are worse, but, but the one we've had now was certainly a, a precursor, a prelude to what's to come. And look, you know, people have got to realise that these things don't really affect us here on Earth. People walking around on the planet are quite safe. We, we've got our ozone layer, we have our magnetic field, and we have our atmosphere. But these can knock satellites out of commission, and they have. I remember a story that we did about three or four months ago, maybe maybe more, about a story called, uh, I think it was the Zombie Sat, they called it. It was a satellite that was wandering and just flying around in space there, out of control, knocked out of commission by a solar flare. Look, back in 1859, we had magic solar flares, amazing solar flares. The aurora around the world were just so, so brilliant. And that's what these things do. They do cause the aurora. But in 1859, there were people using telegraphy machines. We didn't have the modern technology, of course. And when they communicate, they did with Morse code. Well, the telegraphers around the world in 1859 were reporting getting shocks from their equipment. The same thing happened in 1921. Well, here we are now. Now, looking at 2013, and I'll make a prediction, and I've, I've written this, uh, I've written a story about this. Mind you, I've come under a lot of criticism, Frank, from a lot of uh, hardline astronomers and uh, a lot of lay people, too, who think I'm being a bit alarmist, but I'll go out on a limb and say that this solar activity we're having now is a precursor, a prelude to probably one of the biggest solar storms we're going to see in 2013. Well, uh, Frank, what is your take on that? Well, it's really interesting that uh, the past solar minimum has been one of the quietest periods of the sun for a yeah, long but look time. Yeah, what's happening now? Oh, well, absolutely. And in fact, we may get in the course of the program to describing a new telescope that we're building here in Australia that one of whose goals is to be able to look at these uh, ejections from the sun, uh, these coronal mass ejections, and decide which ones are the ones that are going to cause a lot of trouble yeah. here on Earth. Um, it turns out that the magnetic field that's embedded in the plasma that's ejected from the sun, uh, the orientation of that relative to the Earth's magnetic field in the magnetosphere is important in deciding whether this stuff will actually penetrate down to a level that can cause uh, the kinds of effects here on the surface of the Earth that cause disruptions to power grids and things like that, not to mention the things that you just mentioned about uh, satellite communications. Ah, so that's interesting, Frank. That's, I've just learned something. So... The the sun spits out this little bundle of uh, matter or, or, or what is it? Exactly? Well, it'd be ionized particles. Ionized it'd be particles. You know, lots of protons and electrons and ionized helium and so things like that. So it's all like the that. gunk blown off the surface yes. of the sun. So, it, but it has an internal structure. So it has its own little magnetic uh, structure. Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah, it carries some magnetic field along with it. When you look at a flare on the surface of the sun, it often has kind of a bow shape, and that bow shape is caused by magnetic field lines emanating on a north pole on the surface of the sun and terminating on a south pole. And they're fairly localized poles. They're, uh, these are just little patches that where the field enters and leaves the surface of the sun. But the, when the plasma is ejected, it carries along some of that magnetic field along with it. 
Oh, I love the, I love those images you see of the sun now. Is it the SOHO satellites we have up there at the moment that are looking uh, at the yeah. sun? Yeah, we've got a stereoscopic one too that's uh, just come into play. Frank would know about this. We're now monitoring the sun from all angles. Before we couldn't do that. We could only monitor sunspots when they came around in our, uh, in our field of view. But it's important to know that these sunspots appear because, correct me if I'm wrong, Frank, but sunspots have always been seen and believed to be, uh, you know, centralised to the formation of a solar flare or, or a coronal mass ejection. They may be a, a precursor to one of those two. We're not quite sure. Our knowledge of the sun, I think out of all the solar system bodies we've got, Rod, I think our knowledge of the sun is, is the least of, of all of them. You know, we know more about the planets than we do about the sun itself. But um, I, I think that, um, yeah, this... this this, uh, this satellite we've got is, is really good now. We can now find and see sunspots emerging on the other side of the sun and predict that, you know, perhaps in a, in a day or so, uh, we've given up people enough warning, in a day or so we're going to have a, ma- a major solar flare coming up. And that's the benefit of it. We are monitoring the sun now 24-7 in, uh, from all directions, so we're getting, we're getting the right view, the view we should have to, uh, to make the proper oh, so precautions. Give, given uh, some warning that it's on its way, we can put satellites into safe mode yeah, and yeah. so on. Uh, now, Frank here has a very direct interest in this because he started to uh, mention the Murchison, uh, what's it called? The Murchison Wide Field oh, Array? Wide Field Array, that's great. Yeah. yeah, so over there in West Australia. And let's just start by, Frank, you were telling me before the show a little bit about the the country around there. And it's quite an, an amazing uh, location, Murchison, in uh, West Australia. Well, right. You, and you might say, why on earth would astronomers go out into the middle of, well, practically nowhere from my point of view, uh, to build a radio telescope. And as it turns out, the Murchison Shire, which is the headwaters of the Murchison River, which it turns out to be the second longest river in Western Australia, for those interested in facts, the Murchison Shire is the only shire in Australia that doesn't have a gazetted town. In the population census of 2009, there were 114 people living in the Murchison Shire. 114. (laughs) And this is an area uh, that, uh, well, we have several colleagues that are involved in this project that live in in Boston in in the state of Massachusetts. It turns out the state of Massachusetts in the U.S. is uh, smaller by about two-thirds the size of the Murchison Shire. And so they are always impressed by this number as well. So you start, might start to get a feeling about why we're going there. We're trying to get away from where people are because people generate radio noise. And the Murchison Wide Field Array is, in fact, a radio telescope that is designed for several different reasons. One of those is to monitor the sun. And when it gets going, it'll not only monitor radio flares, but it'll also be able to track, in a sense, the, these mass ejections that we've just been worried about uh, influencing communications and survival of electronics. So these uh, telescopes don't like company very much. So you, you said that this device is uh, going to help us understand the uh, the sun better. And how, how's it doing that? It's a radio telescope, right? Well, remember that the things that happen on the surface of the sun cannot be duplicated here on Earth. So many of the people that are interested in the sun, the, the scientists, are concerned with using it as a laboratory for creating conditions that they can't otherwise study. All these energetic particles, these very strong magnetic fields, high temperatures, and so forth. The other concern, of course, is this communications issue. Uh, what happens as the plasma propagates, this uh, ionized gas propagates out from the sun after it's been ejected? 
So these are all the kinds of scientific questions and communications issues that that we can address. So tell us a little bit about the installation itself. Is it a, is a large affair? Is it fairly modest? What, what is it? Uh, well, it, it's a uh, development testbed at the moment uh, for uh, some concepts that uh, apply to uh, the frequency range that, well, it's actually a relatively low frequency range for radio astronomers. It's the same frequency band that we're broadcasting on right now, down around 100 megahertz yeah. uh, wavelengths that are two, three meters in length. So it's a band that has been avoided by radio astronomers for a while because, in fact, the sky is fairly busy and bright at these frequencies. We're only going here because there are particular scientific questions that drive us to try to observe in in the same bands that people use for listening to uh, rock music and science shows. Oh, wow. (laughs) Which are important, of course. Of course. So are you saying there is a spectrum here that we haven't been looking at up until now? Well, we did look at it at the very beginning, in the very early days of radio astronomy, but they very quickly realized that it was advantageous to move to higher frequencies. So Uh, is it a bit like looking at a a picture screen on the television and and removing all the greens? (laughs) I mean, you're only seeing, you know, there's a whole lot of information that you're not picking up because we haven't been looking at this band. Well... I've often heard the, the wavelengths that astronomers use is listening to the cosmic symphony. And you can say optical astronomers listen to part of the symphony, and there's a certain set of instruments that are used there. And radio astronomers pick up the sort of the bass level, the bass violins and so forth, timpani. The, ah. we're, we're looking at uh, part, of, we're listening to part of the con- cosmic symphony, but at just different uh, parts of the spectrum. Now, of course, what all this is about, all of this uh, peering into the sky with these amazing devices and things, is it's all about understanding the universe and where we sit inside it and what are some of the big questions. So what we're thinking is, what are some of the really big unknowns in astronomy? Uh, let's start off with you, David. What's your take on that? <clears throat> well, look, you know, I don't think there's a person um, that hasn't gone out in their backyard at some stage in their life and looked up at the night sky and wondered how many more are up there. Is anyone else looking down at me? Where do they come from and how many stars out there? And, and in the talks that I do, and I do quite a lot of public talks, I, I, I do sort of, I, I look, I have a few things that I say that, that pre- provoke a reaction, and I want to do that because I want to, I want to get people to think. And one of those things I say is the well-known phrase that there are more stars in the universe than the grains of sand on every beach in the world. And then I preface that by saying, you know, have you ever walked outside and tried to count them? I have. And I make a magical figure up, some stupid figure that I've got to 100,000 million and then lost count. But also, at the end of that, I tag this on and I say, look, just to give you some idea to reinforce what I've just said, you know, there are more stars in the universe than heartbeats for every human being who ever lived. And that sort of encapsulates what it's all about. I, I think the big picture, why Frank does what he does, why, why I do what I do, and why most people look through telescopes, but we want to know... Where did we come from? What's the universe all about? How big is it? Does it have an end? And uh, is there anyone else out there? For me, that's the big question. I think, you know, I'd like to pass from this mortal coil knowing that there is somebody else out there. I can't understand how a universe can be so big and basically infinite and have so many worlds in it that <laughs> there, there, there can't be life on other worlds. There, there are other planets. I think the day we discover a signal that somebody else is out there or find evidence that we're not alone in the universe, I think that would be singularly the greatest story in human history, and I think you'd agree with that, Frank. Yeah, I, I think you put it very nicely from... Uh, you, you express it very well from my point of view as well, David, 
that's what I feel. I walk outside, look up at those stars. I just think this is amazing, and I <clears throat> and I'm part of this. I'm a tiny little part of this vast thing. Yeah. But what's a professional astronomer's view on this, uh, Frank? I mean, there are big questions in astronomy. What, what are the things that keep you up at night? Well, I think we're starting to enumerate the many things that interest many people. Uh, there are, in fact, lots of things that we now do know very well, and we're learning more and more things all the time. But there are also some very big questions, and, and we've talked about a couple just now, uh, that keep us going and provide entertainment and motivation. From my point of view, the, the, because I'm a little bit hung up on this uh, telescope that we're building out in, in Western Australia, uh, I'm uh, going to pursue the one thing about where we come from and where the universe came from. And we know certain things very well now. In the past two decades, we've uh, tuned our information about things like the age of the universe and what the universe overall co- energy content and mass content is the amount of stuff out there, uh, but there's still some very important things on how the matter has changed over time from being a very smooth, uniform, very hot uh, substance, uh, gas, to being a lumpy, structured uh, universe with galaxies and stars and things in it, because those weren't there in the beginning. Those are things that have built up over time. So it's, it's where the structure of the, of the universe comes from? Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's 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 one of the big gaps. Yeah. Uh, that's we know that there was a certain time when the what was called the cosmic microwave background was emitted when the universe was uniform, and we can view the very subtle structures in that to deduce uh, what the seeds of the large scale structure and the small scale structure that we see now must have been. Uh, but we don't know the pathway that it took through a certain. There's a fairly big gap where our knowledge is is lacking. I, I think two of the biggest questions we've inherited from the 20th century that are still lingering here and may not be answered in the 21st century, I hope they will, is uh, the two things, dark matter and dark energy. These are two of the biggest puzzles we've ever come across. I mean, how can you answer somebody who says, what's dark energy? We don't know. There's a repulsive force that seems to be pushing the universe apart. It wasn't there originally, or if it was, it was very minor. And there, were, there was a period of time about two or three billion years after the universe was born that this inflation period started. The universe just started to speed up. How did that happen? Why did it happen? This, I think, is one of the biggest issues tackling cosmologists. And I think, you know, lay people have also, when you mentioned dark matter and dark energy, people's ears prick up, as they used to do when we used to talk about black holes. We don't know. We think dark matter out there may be enough to stop the universe expanding. Me, personally, I don't think the universe will expand to infinity. I think that's stupid. Whoever the grand architect of this universe was, if there was one, and I hope there is, and I hope there was, that I don't think you would have designed a universe to infinitely expand and just, you know, disappear into nothing. I think eventually enough dark matter will be found out there to stop this expansion, and eventually the universe will start to close in on itself. The question that I always get asked when you do a public talk, or public talks anywhere on astronomy, you always get people say, how was the universe going to finish, or where did it start from? Well, my answer to that is it's going to finish in a big crunch. It's easier that way. It sounds better. It makes more sense that the universe eventually will slow down, come back into a big crunch, and then whammo, it may all start again. So I say to folk, 
think about it this way, you sleep better. Just think that this may be the first big bang we've ever had, or it may be the billionth. We just don't know. There's no observational evidence possible, Frank. You know, because to, to, if the universe is expanding or is collapsing in on itself, we probably won't see the evidence of that four or five billion years' time. So science is at a crossroads now at the moment, and it's a big puzzle. We just don't understand these two things, dark matter and dark energy, and they're not totally... They're not the same thing, although they sound like they are. Oh, oh I, David, I can feel that uh, Frank is itching to add to what you've just been saying. <laughs> I think we might just cut to a, a track because uh, we're, we're talking big questions here. Uh, I can't think of many bigger questions ahead of us. So he, here's a bit of uh, the Beatles for the old timers amongst us who like a bit of Beatles. And you're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on Community Radio to double X. My name is Rod, and our special guests today are Professor Frank Briggs from the Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics, and David Renicky uh, from davidrenicky.com and editor of Astro Space News. And here are the Beatles. And a bit of Beatles there for you on Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM. And this is the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. And our special guests today are live on the phone from www.davidrenneke.com. And Renneke is spelled R-E-N-E-K-E. And he's also an Australasian science magazine writer and publicist, as well as astronomy buff. And you'll often hear him on the ABC. And... Also from the uh, Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics, part of the ANU, Professor Frank Briggs. My name is Rod. Now, we were talking a moment ago, before the break, before the song, uh, about the big questions in science. And, David, you were telling us about uh, dark energy, dark matter, and where the universe is going. And now we're headed for a big crunch, or is it just going to go on forever? And Frank is itching to bring his own views on this. Well, I, let me just give my perspective, and that is uh, someone that um, goes out and observes and tries to answer some of these questions, and that is that we have a limited amount of observation that we've done so far that tells us, uh, told us that the dark energy was there and told us that the dark matter was there by inferring it from observations. And when we build mathematical descriptions based on those observations to describe the the expansion of the universe, for example, we are now coming up with fairly fine-tuning on those on the numbers that go into that mathematical description. Now, when we extrapolate that mathematical description outside of the universe we observe, and that's what you have to do to either look forward in time to whether the universe will expand forever or not, or when whether we try to extrapolate those numbers, that model, this description, back in time, to see what happened before, we're actually trying to operate outside of the realm that, realm that we observe. But those descriptions so far, based on the numbers that we now have, tend to say that the universe will expand forever. Uh, we're making an extrapolation beyond where we actually have facts, but so far at the moment, I'm, I, I'd hate to disappoint David by saying that right now the description points to a forever expanding uh, universe. So it's an interesting one here, isn't it? Because we have, we want to project our own personal desires for the universe and what it actually does. And of course, we're operating in a context of very limited knowledge because with all our smarts and all those amazing things pointing up at the sky to bring to tell us what's going on, we still probably only know a tiny fraction of what there is to know. 
But now, one of the things that you're specialised, you have a special knowledge of, is the so-called the, the phase of reionisation. That's a pretty technical term. What's that? Have well, I got the right? Have I, have I used the right phrase there? Oh, that that, that seems to work okay. Yeah. Um, in fact, that's part of the main motivation for trying to build this telescope out in Western Australia, is to probe a certain phase of the universe when the structure that I was, we were talking about a little earlier ago, when the galaxies are starting to form and stars are starting to form, and they light up. And that source of energy provided by those stars and those galaxies as they collapse is responsible for actually changing the uh, nature of the uh, gas that pervades all through the universe. Even though when you look out now and see galaxies hanging there in the void, in between those galaxies there's uh, lots of gas that you don't see. In fact, most of the the sort of normal matter, uh, hydrogen, protons, helium, that kind of stuff, in the universe now is in between the galaxies, not in them. And it's a, what we call the intergalactic medium, the medium that is in between the, the galaxies. And there's more mass there than there is in the galaxies themselves. The galaxies are like little islands, little condensations in this vast sea of, of material. And when we look back in time, using this kind of telescope that we're building by looking at photons that were emitted a long, long time ago, light that's been traveling for, for many billions of years to reach us now, so that we see things that emitted those as they were when those photons were emitted, when that light was emitted. Uh, when we look back, we, we were trying to find the place where this happened, where the gas went from being a kind of a cool, uh, uniform gas to being a one that had structure developing in it and became this invisible to us now plasma of, of uh, intergalactic medium. And that's what we're aiming at with this telescope that we're talking this about. This is the Murchison. Now, we also have on the horizon, so to speak, the square kilometre array. Now, that uh, Australians are well familiar with the Snowy Mountain Scheme as a massive piece of uh, construction, a huge project in our history, which we all feel rather proud of. Uh, listeners to Fuzzy Logic will be well familiar with the Large Hadron Collider at uh, CERN, uh, at least in, in some sense familiar. But uh, the Square Kilometre Array is just this huge thing, and I only really got a vague sense of just what a large construction mm. it is. Yeah. Well, I guess you want me to pick up from here, given that I'm a radio astronomer and the Square yeah. Kilometre Array is designed yes, to do radio astronomy. Yeah, the question is, yes, I didn't frame that as a question, but Frank... <laughs> Uh, the, the, the Murchison Array is, in a sense, a precursor to the Square Kilometre Array. Yeah, there. Are, in fact, Australia is involved in several of these kinds of uh, precursors, or what they term SKA pathfinders, Square Kilometre Array pathfinders. Uh, we're building one that has uh, fills that bill, and then the CSIRO has another uh, pathfinder they're building called the Australian SKA. Pathfinder, commonly shortened to ASCAP. Um, and that also is being built on this same site out in the Murchison. Uh, this site has been chosen as Australia's candidate SKA site uh, where we would like to have this thing built. Now, in common with CERN, this kind of project uh, has, well, several things in common. One of them is it's an international collaboration, so we're trying to gather together countries from all over the world to pool their resources, pool their technology, and pool very importantly, the finances to build this thing. So in common with CERN, this is also a very expensive proposition. It's also very high-tech, involves massive amounts of supercomputers, it involves uh, connection to uh, 
huge power sources, which is difficult out in the Murchison. It's a long way for many power plants at the moment. And it also involves information technology that allows you to transmit large quantities of data around the country. So one of the things that's coming up is that the first one of the first links in the NBN, National Broadband Network, is to extend from Perth to Geraldton and then a broad part of the NBN and then to install fiber out into uh, this fairly remote part of Western Australia specifically to provide infrastructure for these radio telescopes of the future. Wow, and so David, you must be really hanging on a project like this coming to Australia and I right. understand we're competing with South Africa for it. Yeah, we are. We've been shortlisted. Look, I think we'll get this and I think we deserve it because we've been leading the world for a long time, always have, in radio astronomy. We've got the best place in the world. Our country here is so well situated. Radio telescopes don't like radio stations, Rod. We've got to get them away from that interference. Look, yeah. this originally started out with, um, you know, there were four sites originally proposed, South Africa, Australia, Argentina and China. This was a global collaboration that still is of 20 countries, trying to find the fundamental, fundamental answers to fundamental questions like we talked about. It's going to operate over a wide range of frequencies that will be 50 times more sensitive than anything we've ever used before. I'm holding great hopes for this. Whatever country gets it, we're going to get a bonus out of it. Astronomy, astronomy in general is going to find out so much. Just correct me, Frank, it's the receiving station with a, a well, up to a distance of about, I think, about 3,000 uh, 3, K from its central core. But we're going to be able to study it 10,000 ti 10, times faster. We're going to be able to look at the sky and survey things 10,000, not 100, but, but 10,000 times faster than ever before. And I think this is great. I think we'll get it. I'm not sure when the decision is going to be made. I think it's uh, the end of 2012, maybe the end of this year, if we're lucky. But um, start probably around 2016, hope to be ready by 2019, 2020, and uh, fully operational by 2024. Watch this. Out of everything we've ever done in radio astronomy collectively around the world, I think this is probably one of the most important, incredible things we're ever going to do. We're going to see. We're going to find so much with this array. Well, Frank, there's one thing I've been uh, wanted to ask about, and that is it's called the square kilometre or kilometre array, now, the term square kilometre is not just like a kilometre of a, in a farm paddock, is it? It's something a bit more than that. Well, you, no, you're right. that uh, it, The square kilometre says, suppose you take all the little telescopes that are probably going to build up this big telescope and added their area together. So you think of little dishes, if you like, and they might be 10 metres in diameter. And the question then is, how many 10 metre diameter telescopes do you have to hooked together electronically in order to make an area of a square kilometer. And as David just pointed out, you don't have to have them all confined in a paddock. You can sp spread them all around the continent of, of Australia and out into New Zealand and, and other places that you'd like to visit from time to time and wire them all together electronically. And it's the combination of those telescopes that gives it those little telescopes that gives the big telescope its power, its resolution, and its sensitivity uh, to astronomical things. So that's amazing, isn't it? One square kilometre of collecting surface and spread across 3,000 kilometres. Does it matter the fact, and, and is this a distinguishing feature between Australia and Africa, that we have such a wide continent? That it, Does it, the, like the east-west uh, 
spread of these telescopes make a difference? It, it certainly it certainly helps. Um, I mean, the, you, you end up shopping around for islands and things <laughs> off you know, Madagascar and then some of those other islands in the Indian Ocean uh, where you could put telescopes to build up the area. Uh, Australia has the convenience that you start out with one country, most of the areas in one country, and so there's much less negotiation required to figure out, uh, uh, to manage the rights to build things in different places. So you might have local councils, but at least you have one national jurisdiction of, of a sort that, right. that you're dealing with. You're not different, you're not negotiating okay. with um, a whole lot of different African nations. I'm, so I'm not trying to cast aspersions on, on the African bit or anything like that. Yeah. But, um, so just the, just the mechanics of organising it is, I think, what you're saying. I, I think, Rod, one thing that's going to come into play here, and sadly to say that it's going to be the political instability of South Africa that may go against it. We have a, a country here that's, uh, you know, generally uh, well-behaved. We, we, we have radio silence in an area in Western Australia that's so well-suited for this telescope. I believe we're going to get this, and I think we're going to get it. We're going to have the decision made in our favour. And, boy, will this be a big boost for Australian radio astronomy. Yeah, and... I've also been hearing about the amount of data this thing is going to be generating. It's not a garden hose. It's not a fire hose. It's an Amazon river of data. Now, I've heard that it's generating as much data as the entire internet in one year or yeah. something like that. It's absolutely mind-boggling. Well, the Hubble telescope's been doing that for a long time. For a long time now, there's not enough people alive. Even if all these, all these astronomers in the world collectively stopped what they were doing and started to analyse all the data that Hubble's downloaded, I don't think we'd ever... No one did long enough to get through it. So you are right, we're going to have an embarrassment of riches, but, boy, I'd rather have it that way than nothing at all. And uh, certainly there's going to be quite a lot of information. Thousands of terrorists coming through here, not hundreds, but probably thousands of terabytes, and that's a new term. We're going to have to come to use uh, use that term more often in the uh, in the 21st century. Yeah, we, because we've gone from kilobytes to megabytes, yeah. petabytes. Well, petabyte is the new is the new uh, quantum by which you <laughs> measure databases. Uh, look, uh, that's a lot of CDs. I think we might just have a, a short uh, music break here. Let's have a listen to. Uh, uh, the third atom bomb, a fairly gloomy piece of music, but it's nice. So let's listen to this. This is uh, Ian White, and it's a bit of music I got from a busker some time ago. You're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. My name is Rod, and special guests today, Professor Frank Briggs and David Renicky. And let's listen to the third atom bomb. And that's the third atom bomb, a fairly gloomy piece of music from Ian White, busker on Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM. And you're listening to me, Rod. We're talking astronomy. We're talking the Murchison Wide Field Array. We're talking now about the Square Kilometre Array and the big questions in the universe that it's hoping to answer. And our special guests are Professor Frank Briggs and Dave Renicky. And Dave Renicky, just a reminder, is from www. Dave Renneke, that's R-E-N-E-K-E dot com, and he's Australasian science magazine writer and publicist. So where's all this headed? I mean, what what's this going to do for us? I mean, we're, we're looking into the structure of the universe. We're going to get a kind of a place about the the 
we can project back or look back in the past of the universe and we're kind of looking forward to seeing where it's going and what the future of the universe is. Just a question about um, dark energy, Frank. It's a fairly nebulous concept. Like, I can imagine a thing, dark matter, and I, and I believe there's a thing, there's the wimps and the machos, you know, the, the big chunky things versus the subatomic particles. And I can imagine sort of a sort of matter that we haven't yet discovered but dark energy seems a bit more weird what 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 do you, how do you think of it is it just an, an is it just like a, a way of solving an accounting problem with the universe because there's some numbers that don't add up and is it just a mathematical construct or is it something a bit more at the moment i think it's heavily constrained as a mathematical concept i think that the mathematical description that we have of how the universe is working uh, is now fairly precise. And there are a few more things that we can do better, and people are working very hard on that. I think one of your previous visitors, Brian Schmidt, mm, uh, probably, mm. uh, and he's one of the key players in, in that area of endeavor. Uh, so that, that those things will be refined. I think the fact that we have two puzzles, both the dark energy and the dark matter, is can either be viewed as a lot of excitement, which most of us do, but also a little bit of an embarrassment because uh, to some extent astronomers have said they know it's there, but exactly what it is actually moves into the realm that theoretical physicists and particle physicists probably have a better chance than astronomers do. We may be, we might come up with a surprise and we might be able to refine what we know a bit better, but we're really counting on the people in the theor theoretical physics area that describe the fundamentals of, of uh, particles and, and fields uh, to help us out. So what do we know about it? What, what's the nature of the force? Is it is it's a repulsive force? Is that right? Yes. And so it's, it's, like it's, pushing, yeah. it's, it's pushing things away in the universe faster than, than we It's providing another acceleration to the expansion of the universe that was not expected. It was expected that the Big Bang imparted an expansion and then the mass within the universe itself, including the dark matter and ordinary matter, uh, were acting, acting as a gravitational attraction to slow down the expansion. And that's the, that's the uh, big crunch concept that David uh, was hoping to, is hoping to see uh, and have confirmed. <laughs> if he lives that long. But uh, this dark energy th throws a little bit of a, of a kink in that uh -huh. point of view because it apparently is providing an, a re-expansion uh, force. It's something, so something really fundamental. And yes, as you say, it's a bit of an embarrassment. That yeah. uh, It's almost like you go to the accountant and he goes, oh, uh, yeah, this is this money we hadn't really thought of. But are, are there other theories to account for this? I mean, is it is it the only idea we have at the moment? Or is it something that we've maybe just misjudged some of the fundamental cons constants in the universe? Like, um, I don't know. But is it our only idea at the moment? At the moment, there are several lines of observation and argument that point toward the mathematical description that we're currently working with as being pretty darn good. Uh, I think people would be surprised if you had to change that mathematical description very much. But we have it observed it only over a limited range, and that means that the things that follow, uh, there may be other forces and other things that come into the picture. And when we look back earlier, if we can find ways to look back into the period of inflation and things that preceded, the, they're outside of the realm, current realm of astronomical view. 
if we can find ways to look back into that time, we may also learn some very revealing things. And it'd be nice if both dark matter and dark energy could explain, be explained with one coherent theory uh, that started to become the theory of everything. David may have a point of view on this as well. Yes, um, David. Look, I think out of what you're saying here, just one thought that came to me was that we're only new at this. The universe is a puzzle wrapped in an enigma with a question mark tag on the end of it. It is the biggest puzzle. We're standing at the shore of a huge ocean. 90% of the world's scientists who ever lived are still alive today. This is the oldest science in the world, but it's also the newest. I think, Frank, you'll agree, we just started to tap what, what's out there. We, we just started to... I think it was only in the, in the 1960s, I remember watching the summer science school with Harry Messel, Professor Harry Messel, and they had visiting cosmologists. Herman Bondi was big at the time. Thomas Gold. There were three different theories on how the universe was. Steady state, oscillating universe, and the Big Bang. Well, the Big Bang, apparently, from observations, is one out. And so it should. It's the best of the bad bunch. But we still don't have all the answers. I just think there's so much to know out here. We've just got to keep probing and looking. But again, I do point to uh, to those two things, the, the dark energy and the dark matter. We don't understand that. We want to know what the universe is about, where it's going, where it came from. Because I stand out here most nights and look at the sky and scratch my head and just wonder the enormity of it. But I do, my particular field, my, my particular... Uh, liking or, or preference for the moment is in for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. I think we need to reach out. Human beings are intrinsically curious. We want to know if anyone else, else is out there. Uh, there are so many things. I just wish I could live long enough, Frank and, uh, and Rod, to, to see it all happen, to see what we're going to achieve in you know, between now and the next, say, 50 to 100 years. Well, here's a, here's a question for you both. I'll start with you, David. <clears throat> Does it kind of appeal to you, the fact that there is a really big fundamental question like this that we're still falling over? I mean, i kind of attracted to the idea that we don't know it all. And, and the fact that there is a mystery. You know, in a computer game, I think one of the attractions of some of these games is that you're exploring a world that you don't know and you artificially set up a mystery. So humans love mysteries. So how, how do you... Is that what... Does yeah. that appeal to you, David? Yeah, the chase is well worth it. Look, what keeps me alive, what keeps me going, is turning this computer on every morning and downloading 20 or 30 newsletters with so much research being done on it. I think we need that. It would be terrible to know all the answers. I, I'm just glad we don't. And, and I'm one of those people, scientists hate a puzzle. They want answers to it. And it's terrible when you can't get those. But by observation, we will. Eventually, human beings will solve most of those questions. I just look at a projection. Somebody said to me some time ago, how do you see, what do you see is developing? What, what's going on? I think we'll see bases on the moon by 2025, 2030. We'll see people on the red planet by 2040, a colony there certainly by 2060. And by the end of the century, human beings will be walking all over this planet. We will have developed by that time. Uh, within the next 15 to 20 years, certainly, you know, a very well-structured and a very well-patronised uh, um, um, uh, private space travel. Britt Branson and co, people like him, putting people into orbit. People will be working and thinking, travelling. We'll be mining asteroids. We'll have, you know, colonies on the moon. We'll be mining the helium-3. We've got so much out there. There's enough to keep the human being or the human race busy for uh, the next 100,000 years. David, you, your sense of excitement is, is infectious, and, and I really like <laughs> that. Uh, but I want to ask uh, Frank now, what, what is it that really brings you into astronomy? Is it, is it these big questions of puzzles? And as David says, just just working your way through this, 
Well, is it also the, the sorry? The, also the practical side here, because your work with the the actual devices with the uh, the, the telescopes is is a very hands-on thing oh, as well. Isn't it's it? certainly a combination. I think that uh, this idea of there's always puzzles is definitely part of the driver. Uh, the act of doing science is one of sort of peeling layers off an onion. You make a breakthrough and you get one layer peeled off and then lo and behold there's another one underneath it. And I think the more we know about where the universe came from, the further we'll be looking looking back and looking into and so on, that there'll always be another layer there. At least I know in the course of my lifetime it'll be true. But the fact of building things uh, is definitely definitely there. It's, it's like having new toys to play with. Uh, you build something, you train it, you exercise it, it has its own personality, you see it work, you get the numbers out, you plot the numbers up, they tell you something or they don't tell you something, they tell you it worked, they tell you it didn't work. It, there's always another thing to do. So I, I go, generally go to work not thinking of it as work, but thinking, man, I'm going to go, go to my playpen and I'm going to have fun again. I don't feel like I really have worked a day in my life when I think back. Uh, and I'm it. glad you do because what you, the illumination you bring in, you know, brings observers like me into the story oh. and, uh, and, and I really connect with that. And, and obviously David does too and as many of our listeners. And just finally, uh, Frank, uh, you, you have a, an accent which is not Australian, which I hesitate to point out, but, um, <laughs> We, we love you in Australia. What, I'm what Australian, you, mate. Yeah, good on you. What, what brought you to Australia? <laughs> what brought you to Australia from Philadelphia? I think you said. Oh, well, I came to Australia from Philadelphia via a number of places in the U.S. before spending about ten years in in the Netherlands, actually, ah. which is also a powerhouse for radio astronomy and astronomy in general. Um, and I came here partly because after I had visited, I was looking for reasons to come back. And when an opportunity presented itself, I was on the plane uh, as quick as I could. Well, it, it is a privilege to talk to you and your colleagues, and we have had a number of wonderful people from Mount Stromlo. And uh, an open day coming up, and uh, we're hoping we can get involved with that. Looking forward to seeing the revitalization of the Mount Stromlo Observatory after the terrible fires of 2003. Which kind of segues me very nicely into uh, our next guest who uh, we'll be going to after the uh, break, and that is uh, Dr. Fiona Wood. And uh, Australians or Canberrans know about fires, and she is well known across the country for her work in on burns. And uh, so I'm looking forward to talking to her. And it's time to say a very big thank you to our two guests. Now, David, uh, if people want to visit you online... You are on? Yeah, it's it's simply davidrenicke.com, D-A-V-I-D-R-E-N-E-K-E.com, and uh, only too happy to field answer questions from, from your listeners there, Rob. And uh, many of our listeners will also know your voice from the stints that you do on the ABC. Yeah, I'm on 16 stations uh, at the moment. I talk quite a lot on radio and talk about astronomy. Well, it's, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you, David. And Professor Frank Briggs, 